Welcome to Get Found, Get Funding Visibility, Paths for Growth and Opportunity for Entrepreneurs. We focus on those entrepreneurs who are statistically underrepresented in the startup ecosystem. Your hosts are Zena Island, president of X Plus PR, a media relations agency, angel investor Aurelia Flores, managing member of Athena Digital Media Group, a digital marketing agency, and angel investor Christina Francis, president of Esteem Logic, an information technology consulting and training firm. In each episode, you will meet a new startup founder, hear about their company and where they are now. We then focus on one key challenge facing that entrepreneur, a challenge that is common among startups. Each episode also features a guest expert to weigh in on the challenge. Welcome to Get Found, Get Funded. Welcome to another episode of Get Found, Get Funded. This is your co-host, Christina Francis, and today we are joined by a true catalytic change agent, Melissa Bradley. Melissa is managing partner of 1863 Ventures, a business development program that accelerates new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. She also serves as an advisor to the New Voices Foundation and New Voices Fund, as well as the Halcyon Fund. Melissa is a former co-chair of National Advisory Council for Innovation and Entrepreneurship and was recently named one of the most entrepreneurial women investors in 2018. Melissa is a professor at the McDonough School of Business at Georgetown University, Hoya Saxa, where she I teaches. Told you we got <laughs> Michigan people got up in here. Uh, Georgetown's <laughs> representing Georgetown. on, on this show, where she teaches impact investing, social entrepreneurship, P2P econ- economies, and innovation. She recently received the Ideas Worth Teaching Award, which celebrates exceptional courses that are preparing future business leaders to tackle society's largest challenges and create a more inclusive, just, and sustainable version of capitalism. She is also a co-founder and managing partner of Sidecar Social Finance, a social impact agency that provides impact investing, advisory, and capital services to individuals, institutions, and social enterprises. Melissa currently serves as a board chair for My Way to Credit, and board member for AEO. She is founding advisor to the Dell Center for Entrepreneurs as well as a senator with the Board of Governors at Georgetown University. Melissa's educational background includes graduation from where other than Georgetown (laughs) University in 1989 with a bachelor's of science degree in finance from the School of Business and a master's degree in business administration and marketing from American University in 1993. Awesome, Melissa. We are so excited to have you here. Boy, oh my gosh. <laughs> See how many me. times we can say that on the show. <laughs> We're excited. Really, <laughs> we got I you know. here in studio. In studio. Yeah. Can you Very believe nice. it? Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, you were actually on one of our earlier shows yes. with Rashana Novellis and provided feedback yep. to her. Yep. And so we're we're now glad you're here so we can and talk you about your tell story. We've changed our format. I know. Oh, it was because of you, to be honest with you. That's why the format changed, oh, because okay. the, one of the producers of our show said how you came in and you provided all that feedback and mm-hmm. advice. It would have been nice to have had you on the show during that whole time. So, well, I'm glad I got invited back. So <laughs> we've changed the whole format. Yeah, so Melissa, I don't even know where to begin. We have so much to talk about, because if you are in D.C., anyone who's in the investment space, the entrepreneurial space, knows you, has worked with you, has heard of you, or at least has admired you. So one, thank you for all that you do for us as leaders in this space, as well as entrepreneurs in this space. <clears throat> so we read a little bit about your bio. We had the longer one, but we chose the shorter one, which was still long, um, and just shows your tremendous journey of just being curious and courageous and being a trailblazer for so many people. Um, you went from investment banking to owning your own firm, a financial services company that was then exited. You became an angel investor, then a VC. Now you're an ecosystem builder, a professor, an entrepreneur, a teacher, and a mother of six. Yes. I'm how, sure how, retire soon. <laughs> <laughs> so talk to us about your transitions from employee to owner to investor to teacher. And was each transition a conscious tra- transition? Mm. Um, you know, how did you... T- decide to take those steps in your career and you know, how much was intention versus circumstance? So working in corporate America was intention because I had student loans after mm-hmm. going to the phenomenal Georgetown University. Oh, yes, <laughs> <laughs> um, 
And so despite the many jobs I had while I was there, the loans still came due. Um, but leaving corporate America was, I would say, almost a force out in mm -hmm. that I was accepted to a training program where within a couple of years you were supposed to be something. Mm -hmm. And the reality is that once I got there, somebody literally said to me, you will not get a promotion unless somebody dies or leaves the company. Yeah. And luckily, when I was getting my MBA, I learned how to play golf. Mm -hmm. And so I had always enjoyed it, but wasn't necessarily all that good at it. Mm -hmm. um, and so I had been playing before I went to grad school, but realized because of this incident working in corporate America, I went out and I dared to play with the guys. And I was willing to hit from the guys' tees because we were playing best ball. During that day, I learned that the company was about to be reorged, mm. and it was six months ahead of schedule, and I was like, this is truly where stuff happens. Absolutely. And so he said, well, you must be excited because we're going to send you to California, and I was like, mm, mm -hmm. not really. Nobody asked me. <laughs> um, and I said, am I getting a raise because cost of living? And yeah. he was like, oh, we haven't gotten to that. And I realized that the disbursement of my department was because we had been hyper successful. Mm. I had booked $19 billion of new loans, and that was probably mid-range for the group of other seasons executives and they realized us flying all over the country was too expensive. Mm -hmm. So I said, this is absurd. So within six months, I said, what am I going to do? Mm -hmm. And I realized I hated getting dressed every day. I hated walking into a building where people were falsely polite and I didn't really enjoy mm -hmm. what I was doing. And so I said, what else can I do? But being a finance major and being in financial services, I literally said, what is it about my job that I hate that mm -hmm. I could actually course correct? Yeah. And that's what had me start my company. So I started my company six months before I was reorged mm -hmm. on their dime, but they knew. I yeah. said, you know what? I know a reorg is coming. I'm probably not going to go. So I'm going to do my job and I'm going to do some other stuff. So I started my own business because I had to figure out what to do. Mm -hmm. And so that was pretty intentional. Um, Having an exit was pretty intentional as well because as we began to grow, we had moved from the B2B space, I'm sorry, the B2C space to the B2B space. And I got tired of walking in and meeting with white male executives. Essentially, we had created an outplacement services firm to help people who are being forced out because this is the late 90s. And the reality is I was tired of showing up and two things would happen. They would go, oh, you're Melissa Bradley. And I'm like, right, Melissa, Bradley, Georgetown, you're expecting a white woman. Oh, yes, actually. And, and they were like, well, yeah, kind of. Yeah. And then we'd have a conversation. They'd go, you remind me of my daughter. Mm. And I would quickly look I around the that. room yeah. and realize there were no pictures of their daughters, but there were mm. pictures of their sons in suits. And if there was a daughter picture, it was with the grandkids. And I would, finally, I said one day, I said, well, what does that mean? And they said, well, I guess, you know, you're on your way to get an MRS degree. And I was like, oh, definitely not. Mm. But thank you, sir. And so I realized I could no longer keep showing up. And I hired a white guy. And I was like, I need you to go do this for me. He was a friend. Mm -hmm. And I said, and then I need to get us bought because I don't want to do this anymore. So that was intentional. And I think everything after that has been relatively intentional in terms of my desire to do something different, mm -hmm. my desire to figure out how to increase my impact, but I haven't always known where that was going to be. Like mm -hmm. I would have never thought that I would work for Obama. Yep. Um, and But I was pretty intentional about working for Clinton and mm -hmm. serving in Treasury. Mm -hmm. So I, I Clinton went to Georgetown University as well. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Uh, 68. Class of 68. <laughs> um, so, so I think that there was something around being open to mm -hmm. what came, but being mm -hmm. intentional around it's time for a change. So what would have happened if you didn't go to golf that day and hear the news? Would you have had time to plan and figure out what you wanted to Absolutely do? Absolutely not. Because like most good corporations, they gave people two weeks mm -hmm. to make a decision. Right. Yeah. So we were told there was an all-company meeting. We went to the meeting. The news was dropped. And then various divisions that were being reorg were literally handed an envelope on the way out. Mm -hmm. And then you had a pre-scheduled meeting with HR. <clears throat> and it was usually within 48 hours. And so you had to really figure out, like, what does this really mean? Yeah. How do I fit? Um, so absolutely not. So I will say doing some of those social activities that we all hate pay off. Yeah. I want to go back to when you said you sent the white guy in the room to cut, basically make the deal. Yep. Mm -hmm. And I remember reading a story about um, um, Mr. Johnson of Johnson Publishing. He did the same thing. He yep. wanted to buy a, That's right. buy that building, That's remember? Right. And yep. he had to send somebody white in order to do it. That's right. That's interesting because we're talking, what, when he, when Mr. Johnson did it, we're what, 50s? Yep. 50s, 60s, yeah. 50s, mm -hmm. 60s time? Yep. And you, when you did <laughs> it, it was 
90s. And I understand that's still going on today, right? I mean, I think think it's clear, separating out the political environment since we sit in the nation's capital, Mm -hmm. I think it is clear that there's still a expected archetype of who is in the C-suite of corporate America and who they will interact Mm -hmm. with. And so I think we are hypercritical around pattern recognition and venture capital, but it's no different in corporate America. And people have challenged me, like, why did you do that? And I said, you know what, because I was done. And and at that point, the ends justify the means, Mm -hmm. that it was just time to go. Um, And and, and I would say, I don't, it doesn't make any better, but he was a friend of mine and I was pretty intentional, like, you're only here because I need a white guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was devastated by that. It's like, it's real. Let's just keep it real. And so I do think that you know anybody who is going to try to pave their own way, you have to realize where it's important for you to lead, right. where it's important for you to follow, and where it's important for you not to be. And it was clear I could no longer lead. I didn't want to necessarily follow. And so it was time for me to go. Yeah, and that's, there's certain times where you have to be strategic about it. And it may go against every bone in your body. Absolutely but you are strategic and you do it to get to your yes, to get to that final state. And so that puts you into the position that you're in now to actually help a lot of entrepreneurs in this space. So I've I've got two questions for you. One is, if you had that business today, would you have done the same thing in bringing him in? Or do you feel like the environment today would have allowed you to pave your way and actually mm. find the right investors or, or acquire, uh, folks who would want, wanted to acquire your business? So being honest with myself, I don't know that business would have been successful today, okay. right? Because this was pre-E-Trade okay. and Schwab. <laughs> I mean, essentially the success and the scale of the company came from literally starting and building my own BBS platform as a financial advisor to rolling up financial advisors all across the mm-hmm. country and getting a percentage on revenue, percentage on commission, and developing Very different products. Business, yeah. So you can't even do that mm-hmm. today. But I do often, I, I joke with a lot of young people and say, if I were to start a business right now, y'all would need to look out. I'd like to believe that um, if I were to start a business today, I'd be, I would be successful. Mm-hmm. And I think it's because the pattern recognition requirement exists, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm a finance person. I, I actually love numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, Georgetown being a highly pedigreed institution helps. Oh, yeah. Um, Saxon. We have an amazing network. Um, and, and I have real life experience, right? Mm-hmm. I have, you know, even if we, we winded the clock a bit, I've got real corporate experience, typical investment mm-hmm. banking experience. I have policy experience. Um, so I think it would have been okay. And, and in full disclosure, um, I've started another company where we actually did raise venture capital and I'm the only woman and only person of color on the team. Mm. Uh, Went out to Silicon Valley, uh, raised a bunch of money, and it was interesting because they were very transparent to say we don't have a lot of people of color coming in here, um, but your experience in terms of what we were pitching as a business actually made all the difference. And the white guys on the team were like, we wouldn't have closed this if you hadn't been on the team. Mm-hmm. That must have felt good. It did feel good. Now, yeah. now we're still all under pressure, but yes, it <laughs> felt good. It, but it felt good to be able to also, though, come back mm-hmm. and share that experience with other entrepreneurs yeah. of, here's the small subset right. of venture capitalists who realize that depending on the nature of your business, um, there's a real need to pay attention to entrepreneurs of color, particularly if you're going after communities of color, because right. that's where the discretionary income is. That's where, unfortunately or fortunately, we spend the most of it. Right. Um, we are about to be the new majority. Mm-hmm. And if you think about where we're living and the dispersion of career paths, there are real industries that are completely dependent upon our purchasing power. Mm-hmm. And I do think that some VCs get that. Yeah. And so that everybody's clear what the new majority is. Yeah. Um, do you want to explain that a little bit? So the new majority for us is any historically marginalized population. So typically it is grounded in African-American Latino communities, but we've expanded to be Native American, Indian American, even Asian American in a place like DC, and then mm-hmm. certainly women. So it really is designed to say all of the demographic shifts, basically it's everybody except the white male. Um, and, and I think it's also, we recognize it's also community specific. So when we say Asian American, people go, well, that's not a minority, so to speak, in California. Absolutely not. Mm-hmm. But in the District of Columbia, Asian American mm-hmm. entrepreneurs mm-hmm. are actually struggling harder right. and are experiencing some of the similar backlash when you go into a bank or any kind of financial institution because they're perceived to be different, which mm-hmm. is somewhat ironic. Let me ask a couple of questions about how you positioned yourself. And I think this is really interesting with regard to what you said is that you figured out what pieces of a position you didn't like, you recreated a position for yourself that you could do the things that you were good at and that you did like, 
And I feel like entrepreneurs are often trying to do that, right? Mm -hmm. This is why they go out and create a company. They see a big need, they have a passion, they have a mission, and they are trying to create a business yeah. that they like. Yeah. However, they may not always understand that being an entrepreneur comes with doing all of these other things that perhaps you don't know that much about right. or you don't like. That's right. Tell us about your journey mm -hmm. going from the corporate, okay, I don't like certain pieces of this, sure. let's go and create my own space, yeah. and what you learned on that journey, and then what you tell entrepreneurs about creating their own spaces for themselves. So, so that narrative to entrepreneurs has changed. It changed mm. so much yesterday that I was like, you need to go get a job. Um, <laughs> I, I think what was interesting about it is that the things that I didn't like going in, mm. fake people, not getting dressed, getting up, all the intangibles, the reality is that that doesn't exist in the entrepreneur world either. So I will say that transition was a very rude awakening um, because I was at the whim in the very beginning of whatever my clients wanted and unfortunately whenever they wanted it. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> and it also meant that I took on clients that I probably wouldn't have if I was able to just use my values lens. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think what I learned quickly, particularly as I was like, okay, this is either going to be a hobby or a business. And, and when I was able to finally pay my rent um, and we started making a little bit of money, I realized that without some significant growth, a shift in the business plan, products and not just services and more people, this was going to remain a hobby. And that was a big decision because I went to the SBA, I went places and nobody would give me any money. Um, and so I think that for entrepreneurs now, and even as I think about new ventures that I start, what you have to be able to discern is what is it that you're really good at? Um, what are you not really good at? And I think a lot of times entrepreneurs, because in the pitch world, you just tell everybody what's great about you. Mm -hmm. They're unable to identify what's not great about you. Mm -hmm. But that not great about you is what to me is directly correlated to who's your next hire, which people don't understand really then determines your trajectory. Mm -hmm. Because if you are a A person, you hire a B person, that's probably all you're going to get from that point on. If you own that you're an A minus person, you hire A plus person, now you've set yourself on a course that you can attract other people and you've also created a culture that others of excellence are going to want to come to. So these days I literally am much more honest. I think um, I was very big on this phrase that entrepreneurship uh, should be democratized and I do believe that, mm -hmm. but I also know that successful, sustainable and profitable entrepreneurship is not possible for the entire democracy. And that is because there are a clear set of skills. There is a real reality check on what does it take to grow a business. And I would say there's aspects of what I do now as we scale things that I don't necessarily enjoy, but that's why I was able to get other people to do that. And I think what I tell entrepreneurs now is, let's be really honest, is this a hobby or business? What is your trajectory? Because it's not my job to tell you where you should go. But if you tell me that you want to be a billion dollar company, then I'm gonna tell you this is exactly what's wrong with that initial DNA of what you're trying to create. And I do think that there have been a significant amount of press stories around what is perceived to be successful. But if you look under the hood and you look at their financials, they're not profitable, they're not sustainable. <coughs> there's usually a merger and acquisition to cover up a declining company, mm -hmm. but there's something valuable there. And so I do think that one of the skills that entrepreneurs find out they need down the road is is not just humility mm -hmm. but this willingness to get out of the way and i do mm -hmm. think that we have characterized entrepreneurship as that charismatic leader as opposed to a strategic role that knows when to lead when to follow when to get the hell out the way now let's talk about one of those press stories that just came out atlanta yep has been deemed the black Tech Mecca. It was on the cover of Fast Company. Twitter took off. Facebook, Instagram. People were talking about it. So I guess all these black folks about to move to Atlanta now, thinking for them. For them. <laughs> that my company would be more successful than uh, there. So in in DC, as you know, has been. Yep. Not, I wouldn't say struggling, but they've been trying to get this type of same yep. press, and we haven't. Yep. So let's talk a little bit about why is all this talk around, you know, all these successful entrepreneurs. And like you said, if you look underneath the hood, yep. they may not have all the pieces there. Yep. And then why hasn't DC entrepreneurship yep. been profiled yet? The way it should, black, the way it yeah, should. Thank you right. for the making that. Right. Yeah, right. Because right. right. I think DC is like number one for women. I was like, right, for women. What women, what women yeah. are they? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's, not, it's not people that look like me. So, so I think DC has a couple of problems. So mm -hmm. One is that we don't have a history of being known for anything other than government. government. Right. And I do think that, you know, we all know the nuance between the federal city 
and D.C. Most people are like, what? What was the federal city? What does that mean? So I do think there's a complexity around the career path and the predominance of institutions as primary job creators in the District of Columbia that I'm not sure we're ever going to surpass. Mm -hmm. I also think that when you think about how some of those trends are determined, unless you went to Georgetown, most people leave. I mean, Georgetown does. 65% yeah. of our graduating class stays in D.C. Yep. for at least the first two wow. years. And so I think you have, though, when an indicator that there is flight from many of our universities. Mm -hmm. And while I love Georgetown, we are not a tech school. So if you look at Johns Hopkins and you look at Maryland, a lot of those folks leave because they are migrating to the tech jobs. Right. So if you start to look at some of the inputs of these statistics of where's the black tech mecca, we're probably not going to qualify just by the virtue of the ecosystem of universities. Um, and then I, the reality is, is, unfortunately, D.C. is not that cheap to live anymore. And, and so that has changed. I think mm -hmm. Atlanta has still maintained a relatively lower cost of living mm -hmm. than DC, New York, or San Francisco. Um, obviously, Georgia Tech produces a significant right. amount of tech talent that does tend to stay. Uh, folks from Emory tend to stay. Morehouse and Spelman people tend to go. But if you look at where the tech folks are, they're there. And I think that there you have this kind of natural burgeoning of entrepreneurs who many of those success stories were very early on success stories. Jewel amazingly yeah, being acquired by Amazon mm -hmm. is huge, but she was a real tech person. She but was. there haven't been a lot thereafter. So I think that's one one another big reason. And then finally, I would say there's also though a lot of programming that gets a lot of national visibility. Mm -hmm. So you have Catherine Finney and Digital Undivided, the research that gets put out. Yep. That obviously attracts people to Atlanta. There's the accelerator that gets attracted to Atlanta. And I just think that's a different strategy, right? I think that there are places that I'm learning in Alabama. I mean, Al Huntsville, oh. Alabama is a massive tech community, mm -hmm. but they choose not to stand on the mountaintops and yell about it. Yeah, I, um, about I think Alabama D.C. Lately. is a massive entrepreneur hub, mm -hmm. but we just don't stand on the mountaintops and yell about it. Mm -hmm. And so I also think then it really speaks to what's the local economic development strategy. Mm -hmm. And so if it's about attracting, then so be it. I think D.C. went through that phase where we tried to get companies to come. Right. We went west and we went east, and people didn't really come. Mm -hmm. right. And so now we've moved on to look at other things around opportunity zones and real estate, et cetera. And I think Atlanta, because it is still evolving, is like shouting, come here, come here. And we've kind of taken down our sign that says, like, we're open for business because I do think we are struggling as right. a city, right? We, there's nowhere else to build. <laughs> um, you know, people are going to Southeast, but that's really the last bastion of development. We are limited by boundaries. We can't even go up because of federal aviation laws. Mm -hmm. So I do think we're, we will always be constrained because of our historical brand of being a government town, because we're not the tech mecca for academics uh, and academic institutions, and because we have a pretty unique uh, and I would say rigidly defined footprint in terms of where we can go. But I would dare say that we could probably compete if you allowed us to do DMV. If you allowed us to go to Arlington, I think if that's you the key. allowed us to go to College Park mm -hmm. and, and what's happening in PG County. To if go you out to the Dallas us, Corridor where exactly, all the tech companies then are. Then I think we could go head to head. But mm -hmm. I think that just speaks to the politics and the tri-community rivalry that will always exist. And I'm also curious about <clears throat> whenever I hear anybody say a place is the new Silicon Valley or, mm -hmm. or this is the next Silicon Valley, in my head, I always think, what is it about the Silicon Valley that we want to replicate? Absolutely. And do we really want to do that? Right? right? Because, I mean, I think there's so Overpriced, much... Overpriced, congested, <laughs> Tesla heaven, all white people. I'm not really sure why I want to replicate <laughs> Well, and, and the way the business has been done, yep. historically, yep. has been very much yep. a, like a bro culture. I was reading an article this week about no more warm introductions right. in mm -hmm. the VC community, right? right? Like, if we really want to democratize what's going on in the entrepreneurship field, then it shouldn't just be, oh, who do you know that can get you in here? That's right. Um, and so I think it's also interesting to say, okay, great, we want a, the new Silicon Valley or the next Silicon Valley or whatever, but what are we really saying? We want money that is available to invest. We want opportunity for people mm -hmm. to get that investment. We want um, tech jobs and people who are, you know, facile and tech enabled whatever. Yeah. And then we want to do a whole lot of things different. Theoretically, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. we don't want to kind of recreate what yeah. has been done before, yeah. which has been cisgender white men that went to five schools in two yeah. different areas of the country, and yeah. those were historically all of the people who've gotten funded. Yeah. 
um, and straight. So to boom. Yes. So sorry, I, was like, I forgot <laughs> that in my in my little yeah. in my little list there. And again, there's nothing wrong with that, right? But if we look outside that, even for cisgender white straight white men from Ohio or from the Appalachians right. or from you know, Tennessee, like how many of them have gotten funded, right? So we could look at all of these kinds of things and say, what do we want to do differently with that ecosystem? I also think, though, there's a, what people often forget about Silicon Valley is its history, that it was highly subsidized, mm -hmm. right? All the major companies like Cisco and, and, and Oracle, they were all subsidized by SBIRs and STTRs. Yeah. So yeah. the culture where people get a bunch of venture capital and still aren't profitable, I'm just not sure as the United States economy, that's the model we want to replicate, that you're actually living off of the government donor that right now is not a good thing, mm -hmm. and you continue to be subsidized. And, right. and now the reality is, if you think about most of the tech companies, and I tend to know more fintech, they're not successful until they actually leave the United States because we're not even the fastest growing consumer market that you need to appeal to. Well, and I mean, having practiced in the angel and VC space yeah. during the first dot-com boom and bust, and watching kind of the people didn't have a sense of what the business fundamentals were right. underlying all of this, I just see some of that stuff coming coming around now, right? We're having all of these IPOs which are not profitable, right? right? So it's, I mean, and, and no vision sure. of being profitable. And then that's so interesting. So let's talk about numbers, yep. because yes. I'm a numbers gal. I love numbers. Um, <laughs> it's <laughs> awesome. I sit over here, shake my head. Two plus two is I can't, four. I, I can't understand. understand. I'm so embarrassed. I'm a daughter of an engineer, and I'm still just. And numbers can help tell any story that you want. That's right. How you put it together. That's right. And, and numbers can be really exciting. Absolutely. Particularly right? when they grow. Well, <laughs> they, they can tell you where to look. They can tell That's you right. where you're failing. They can tell you what, right. when to pivot. Yep. They can tell you how much you need and what you're going to need to get there. And it's there. the most objective feedback you're ever going to get. Right? Yes. They don't care if you're brown or black That's or right. a woman or a man or any of those other things we were just talking about. What do you tell people as another numbers gal when you're talking to entrepreneurs? What do you tell them? <laughs> know your numbers. Um, <laughs> and, and, I, and I share. I, I do that too, but let's get right. more specific. Well, because well, I, I think a couple of things. They tell me they're afraid. And, and I always say, what are you afraid of? And I, and I do think there is this element that it is the most objective feedback you're mm -hmm. going to get, right? There is something around learning the truth that I think just scares everybody, regardless of who you are. Um, so I, what I tell them is that it's important to know your numbers. And, and I actually explain why, because I think a lot of them... There's some work that I used to do with a group called Woodhull Institute for Ethical Leadership where I worked with a, a psychiatrist and a psychologist to understand why women in particular don't like numbers. And part of it had nothing to do with numbers because I'm like two plus two is always four. American history is ever changing depending on who's the narrator, mm -hmm. but a lot of people are history majors. And what it was was less about that but the conversations they had at the kitchen table with their dads mm -hmm. or with their granddads and that was this thing that it just wasn't for them that I remember a woman who was a, a co-investor with me in my first fund, and she would say, you know, I can't stand numbers, I can't stand finance, and I was like, like but gave her anxiety. is, I don't know what, like I don't understand. Mm -hmm. And she's like, because my father would say to me two things. If they started to talk about finance, they would say, you should go to your room. Oh. And the second thing is, said, let me explain to you that when you turn 21, there was a, someone who's already been hired to manage your trust. And so it was this issue that there was a lack of trust and belief and a lack of any Independence, too. And, independence yeah. and so and, and obviously it's a very unique case because mm -hmm. she's an extremely high net worth individual but I do think that there is this tendency that if you were in my household we talked about money all the time but that's because we didn't have any right. and and so it was a conversation of now how do we start to allocate this little bit we have but that had to overcome that fear too so I do think that as women nurturers 85% of purchases made by women Many women have had some unfortunate traumatic experience around money of too much and not being able to understand how or why and not being mission aligned or not having enough and not wanting to live in that reality. So we spend a lot of time on helping people understand literally how to do the math. We spend a lot of time on why they need to know the statements because to your point, Christina, numbers tell a story, mm -hmm. right? It is the narrative to me of your business plan, yeah. right? Because you can put it all together, but it means absolutely nothing. And what we realize is a lot of people have no idea. Um, because we do live in a world with technology where if you hit a button on QuickBooks, you've got a balance sheet, right. cash flow, That's and you true. have no idea. And so we spend time saying that this is important. Not Forget investors, who cares? But this is important of how you make a decision of who you hire, mm -hmm. how much you pay them, how much you produce. And oftentimes, unfortunately, it is like when somebody gets hit upside the head that they go, oh, yeah. And, and so we spend a lot of time saying, give me the biggest mistake you've made financially. 
And then we say, okay, let's go back and pull those books and mm. see what were the clear indicators. And they go, oh, wow, like I totally could have avoided that. And then when it's no longer like it's my financials, but it is yet another input around making a business decision, there's still things they have to push through it. And then I think it begins to then contextualize why they've had some conversations with mm -hmm. investors who say this seems like a great plan, but I really don't understand how that's supposed to manifest based on allocation of dollars because it tells your values too and i do think that as women and particularly women of color we often lead with our values which is perfect but then you see a budget and it's usually undervaluing mm -hmm. ourselves Absolutely. undervaluing our market and in reality i don't care what color you are i'm probably not going to believe you because you can't tell me it's a 200 billion dollar market but you're barely making a million dollars in year three and i and that's not conservative that's lack of confidence and mm -hmm. there's a fine line there yeah, I mean, I think what's interesting about numbers from an investor's standpoint, which I talk to angel investors or baby angel investors too, and say, look, it's important for you to be able to read right. a financial statement. You need to understand what pro forma financials look like and what you should expect there. Right. Mm -hmm. And you don't necessarily have to know that everything is going to work out the way that they're saying it's going to work out. Probably not. Right. But at least understand the assumptions right. and what's going into creating those numbers because a lot of people aren't thinking through right. what those numbers are. And I think it is very interesting to me that women have such um, shame around. Or, mm -hmm. or fear. Fear. Or whatever. So fear. And, I, and I think there is a lot <laughs> that historically, you know, girls were said, were told you aren't good at math. That's right. Even if you were, right. right? And a lot of people of color, same thing, we're told you're not good at math or this right. isn't for you when, like you said, it's one of the most objective things you can right. be looking at. When you were, and which is now called 1863 yep. Ventures, yep. Um, let me correct it before I say Project 500, <laughs> That's right. but when you started five, Project 500, mm -hmm. that was the one thing you really, really, really pushed yep. with uh, some of the entrepreneurs that came yep. to your program were those numbers. We looked at all the other accelerator programs that are brand name and none of them teach finance. Mm -hmm. None. Um, wow. To this day, none. Uh, even some local ones. Nobody does finance. Yeah, and they do tech, they do market sizing, but no one does finance. What they do is they give you QuickBooks mm -hmm. and they give you an accountant and they say hit a button and so as a finance major I'm biased and will always be right um, but I also realized that particularly when we first started Project 500 the businesses we were surfa surfacing from Ward 7 and 8 were service businesses mm -hmm. or retail businesses and margins are everything right. in those businesses and people were making decisions like well this is selling out but I can't afford to get anymore and you would just hear stories that would make you cringe that that I could tell right off the bat were cash flow mm. problems and for some, their inability to understand or, or fear of owning that was actually going to cause their business to close. There's a, there's a sister who, thank goodness, is not in this situation anymore, but we realized that she was running a light manufacturing business in Michigan. And she was like, I'm, I can't get ahead. I can't get ahead. And, and, I, and, and nobody's going to give me any money. And I mm -hmm. was diligencing her for a venture capital deal. And I said, well, I'm not going to give you any money either. I said, but here's why. Because you don't know how to manage your own damn money. Mm -hmm. And she said, what are you talking about? And I said, well, because look, you took out a loan <laughs> where you're paying 42% interest wow. because it was an online payday wow. loan that has now repeated itself three times. You have no idea. You're not even calculating. When I said to her this number, I said, what do you think this number is? And that hand stands for not the state of Michigan. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and she said, I think that's probably like our monthly revenue. I said, probably. no, that is your quarterly interest payment mm. on your debt. And so I said, what I will do is I'm going to give you a loan that is at a cheaper interest rate that's going to be extended over time. And we're going to pay off that loan. And if you can get to profitability in six months, then I'll consider investing in you. Wow. She was profitable in four months. Awesome. But she had no idea. All she knew was I'm looking at the bottom line. And some mm -hmm. months it was black. And some months it was red, and she was happy on the black months, her mm -hmm. staff would say, and she was not happy on the red months. But the reality is, if she had understood how to look at her monthly revenue rate and when there was going to be cyclical ebbs and flows, she probably still would have needed money, but she would have been able to negotiate yeah. better terms and understood the impact of interest. And so it's just those little examples mm -hmm. 
that I go, you're killing me. Right. But what was good is that you actually gave her that feedback. Yep. And I wonder how many people knew the problem but never gave her the feedback so she couldn't even recognize it and change the pattern. Well, she was afraid to share the problem, yeah. right? I'm also very clear I only learned about the problem mm -hmm. because I was considering investing. Okay. You right? And so we, I think the other piece is that we have not created a culture in entrepreneurship generally, mm -hmm. particularly amongst women and people of color, around being able to ask for help and be honest oh, about where you are. Because I think if she, I would like to believe that mm -hmm. if she asked anybody else who knew numbers, mm -hmm. they would have told her. Yeah. But she would just feel like all is well and she'd be on panels and she would mm -hmm. do stuff and people like, oh, she's killing it. And I'm like, yeah, mm -hmm. no, she's actually dying because she's not understanding. And everybody on her team were technical people mm -hmm. or engineer people and she was outsourcing accounting. And what I said to her was like, you know, how do you, th how do you feel about athletes? She's like, why are you asking me? I said, I'm just curious. How do you feel about athletes? And she went on this whole diatribe, like, well, they don't, you know, they're great, but, they, you know, they don't know how to manage their money, and you hear all these stories, and the accountants run off, and I go, hmm, okay, now <laughs> cut and paste the subject, and I think that's you. And mm, so I do think wow. that you have to just throw up that mirror and say, this is really not about whether you're yeah. good in math or not, but this is actually a prerequisite around building a business. That's yes. great. Yeah. So yeah. with Project 500, it graduated because yeah. you... We hit 500. You hit your 500. Actually, you 527. Hit 527 yeah. And then you moved on to 1863 right. Ventures. So wait a minute. So for people who aren't in the area and don't know what Project 500 is, Project 500 was an initiative yep. to mentor and grow 500 yep. entrepreneurs in the D.C. region. That's right. Correct. Okay. Right. I just want to make sure that you get the credit yeah. for that. That no, was, no. That so was the, amazing. The, the idea was that in three years, the, because there had been some tension uh, between myself and the city around the allocation of investment dollars towards more micro loans, mm -hmm. um, and the belief that there were really viable businesses mm -hmm. who needed help and were not going to get to venture capital, right. but were most importantly, cash flow and profitable, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but also our job creators when you mm -hmm. started to look at the unemployment rate. And so nobody thought we would hit it, and we got 527 in 18 months. And what's fascinating is that over 20%, I think it was 22.5%, were already million-dollar businesses. Yeah. Wow. But the issue is they were okay. They didn't mm -hmm. need anything. They didn't come out and ask for stuff. They weren't trying to be on the press. They were heads down running businesses. Many of them were B2G, mm -hmm. government contracting. Mm -hmm. Many of them were professional services or construction. Right. Um, but they surfaced because they realized they could look out and see three years from now, those jobs are not going to be there. Those mm -hmm. contracts happened. They saw that construction was really going to start to narrow and start to go to the suburbs because there's nothing mm -hmm. left to develop. And they realized that they wanted help. And so you helped a lot of them figure out how they could scale and or partner with one another. Because yep. <clears throat> I think that's another big thing that I saw out of the 527. Yep. A lot of them are starting to work with one another right. and go after contracts. So how did you help bring that collaboration yep. out? Because you, don't, you don't actually don't see that a lot in a lot of other ecosystems. So a lot of it was building trust. Mm -hmm. um, and, and also, again, just being brutally honest mm -hmm. that when people said, well, you know, you have people that are competing in your class. And I was like, so what? Mm -hmm. You know, if they all successful, right. right? When you really looked at the market sizing, mm -hmm. there was really no reason they all couldn't be multi-million dollar businesses. But what they realized was is that for those that were in construction, I mm -hmm. won't name construction companies, but you know, there are those contracts that are five million dollars plus, yep. and there are those contracts that are less. Now, five million dollars is a lot of money, mm -hmm. so that's like a pretty high bar. And if you're not a five million dollar company, it's kind of hard to bid on a five right. million dollar business. Right. So you're sent to the special projects division. The special projects division is like $100,000 here, $200,000 mm -hmm. there. And we all know construction is probably the lowest profit margins because you got to hire people as a day laborer and you don't get paid till 120 days. So most construction companies are taking out loans. Mm -hmm. So I said, so you guys can either stay all, your, we had one to $3 million businesses, or if you do a JV teaming agreement, because while you were all in one drywall person, mm -hmm. we only had one IOT person, we only had one electrical person. So you're not competing against each other. Right. If you all get together and respectfully get out of the ghetto of the special projects unit, maybe you could actually get something. <laughs> it's a mindset. Um, you know? it's it is a mindset. And so we paid for the lawyers, mm -hmm. we paid for the accountant, they did the agreement, and now several of them are uh, working on the airport. That's awesome. Yeah. That, that's great. And when we, so um, I want to, pivot into uh, her impact if mm -hmm. we can and the partnership that you had with mm -hmm. the Ford Motor Fund. Ford Motor Com Company, Company Fund. Fund. Yeah. You gotta make sure you get that right. Yeah, yes. And the reason why so, I was bringing up 1863 yeah. Ventures, it was all happening at the same, at the same time, time when she was rebranding yep. Project 500 and 1863 Ventures was the new name and yep. then we 
you know, Ford Motor Company came with the project to mm -hmm. uh, Melissa yep. to start um, her impact here, which we yeah. changed the name. It was something else in Detroit. Names, right. names matter. And Semantics matter. Changed they it do, here. which is why we went to 1863. 1863. And I think part of that was in DC, Project Hunters around black and brown businesses mm -hmm. specifically. And when I realized that women, despite all of the programs that exist, were still having the same problems, mm -hmm. we realized we needed to be bigger. Mm -hmm. We also realized that what I was seeing in DC was symptomatic in other cities. Mm -hmm. And so this idea of pivoting to 1863 was the long overdue emancipation and our own economic security as historically marginalized communities. Exactly. Um, but it's kind of sad because I think even if Atlanta being the black tech mecca, they still have accelerators that don't do finance. They still have people that are fighting each other. And, and I would argue that, you know, this is not statistically proven, that we are on par in the nation's capital in terms of number of million dollar businesses mm -hmm. owned by people of color than anywhere else, which I'm not sure people really pay attention to when we're missing and only focused on a billion, a possible billion dollar company right. mm -hmm. that is the employing unicorns. no one, right. but is employing no one <clears throat> versus the businesses that are actually employing people and really having a positive impact on the economy. And part of what you've done with her impact has been pivot a little bit yep. too. So yep. you're not doing exactly what you did with Project 500. Right. Um, I was fortunate enough to be a judge at one of your her impact events. We're going to ask uh, you and, again. And, <laughs> and speak at another her impact event. Mm -hmm. And I think what you're doing is really interesting because it, it's not just being part of a cohort. Now you've got different events going on. Right. You've got speaking engagements. You've got a pitch competition. Yeah. Talk to us about why you pivoted and what you're looking to do as a part of that venture as opposed to for Project 500 and maybe why some of those differences and, and let me chosen. Let me add on to that because with your pitch competition, you have early stage companies right. as well as right. later stage. And why was that important yep. to you to add those? So I think the, the Her Impact initiative um, was designed to really focus on women mm -hmm. and, and this idea of, of marrying female entrepreneurs and really promoting their natural nurturing nature mm -hmm. with this idea of impact. And I think that what it's still attempting to do, but has done relatively well, is kind of demystify this idea that you have to be a cutthroat, uh, ruthless person who just takes people out and the Gordon Gecko of the world to be a successful entrepreneur. And I think one of the reasons why the partnership works with Ford Motor Company Fund is because we do make a distinction around entrepreneurship as a means of individual wealth versus entrepreneurship as an economic development strategy mm. for community wealth. Mm -hmm. and, and we tend to play in the economic development for community wealth piece. And so this idea of knowing that many women start businesses, not just to become extremely wealthy, but to help a certain population, to help family, to empower mm -hmm. more women, to be role models, how do you really amplify that? And so the idea was that there are lots of people doing really good stuff in the ecosystem, but they oftentimes struggle in alignment, which is the right program for them. Mm -hmm. They also struggle with being able to even articulate and understand impact and promote it as something positive as mm -hmm. opposed to a trade-off. Um, and then I think we found that there's a lot of money out there, quote unquote, for early stage mm -hmm. companies, but mm -hmm. not those that are growing right. because right. there is this, I don't know what they think happens. Like I, I give you a million dollars and then like it's never going to run out. And, and we find that those later stage companies, again, in line with who are the real job creators mm -hmm. and who are producing the, the multiplier effective impact, they're struggling just as much to get right. money and a lot because they're gender and a lot because most traditional investors, when they hear impact, they go, ooh, that yes. sounds like a nonprofit. Right. So, so the idea now is that it's a bookended initiative that goes into a community, galvanizes all local people and advisory committee who are doing really awesome work, but who would tell us our customer acquisition costs are too high, we're not getting the right people, we don't have enough money, and we don't know how to amplify the importance of impact. And so by being able to say, here's an entrepreneurship summit, let's kick it off to the entire community, to and leverage local ecosystem builders to do one-on-one -on -one and group mentoring and office hours in a non-cohort driven way because that's pretty rigid and, mm -hmm. and good for some but not for most um, and then to reward with a pitch competition that recognizes there's still a need for early stage mm -hmm. investors, particularly who have decided to lead with impact. Right. They're probably screwing themselves prematurely. Mm -hmm. um, the we'll center, talk about that in a second. So the, yeah, the <laughs> Center for Advancement of Social Entrepreneurship at Duke, run by mm -hmm. Kathy Clark, did a, a survey uh, in partnership with the US, USAID mm -hmm. of global social entrepreneurs and found that 85% of them are no longer leading with their social entrepreneur because they realize investors don't get it. Well, what a loss because there's right. so much more value there. Right. And then we obviously recognize later 
later stage companies because we want to make sure they don't go away mm -hmm. and they help bring that ecosystem. And then we repeat that twice and then we leave. And what we realize is that in many cases, the hope is that advisory committee still continues to work together. In mm -hmm. DC, we've seen that people started working for other people's right. organizations, which was great. Mm -hmm. uh, we now are going to Miami. Mm -hmm. um, and then the goal is at least 20 cities throughout the country. Um, so the, the good thing is, is that it's a company figuring out how to transfer its values locally without squashing the ecosystem. Right, right. It's catalytic, it gets in, it gets mm -hmm. out. And the idea is that it doesn't leave a bunch of rubbish, but it leaves ideally the ecosystem slightly better than it was and evidence and case studies of what is possible for yeah. female social entrepreneurs. And sometimes you just need that energy to come in and energize the ecosystem mm -hmm. and Absolutely. see the possibility yeah. and let the companies and firms that are there understand that they can work together Absolutely. and move people along, which Absolutely. I think is, you know, I was uh, lucky to be on your, a panel at Her Impact as well, talking about the DC ecosystem. Yeah. And it was interesting because we had all worked with each other in some form or fashion right. and really helped identify potential higher growth companies. Yep. Um, let me, let's go back to that impact investing because uh, sometimes it could be a dirty word, yep. right? And yep. so when you talk, a lot of times when you lead with female or underserved, a lot of investors immediately say, who are not focused on that, well, maybe this has to come out of my CSR fund right. or a different type of bucket. Right. What are your thoughts on how we can change that bias to make sure that the money is flowing appropriately? So I, I um, there's a woman, Claire, I'm blanking on her last name, who um, was at Gin. They said all investing has impact. Mm -hmm. And so I do think that first we have to better define the term that is not about impact in lieu of profit, but it's recognizing that every investment has an impact and where we have the opportunity to have a positive impact, mm -hmm. wouldn't that just be a great thing for everybody? Right. Um, I think the second thing is, is that unfortunately it's a term that has been bifurcated depending on if you're an asset manager or mm -hmm. you are a direct investor. And so I think it's become much more acceptable in the traditional fixed income equity space mm -hmm. because you know, you We've always had the sin stocks. Don't invest in cigarettes. Don't invest in alcohol. Right. Don't invest in gambling, Firearms and and, yeah. and all that kind of stuff. Also, at least they say right. Um, and so I think there's a better acceptance there. I do think that because there has not been literally, I, I tried to find this the other day, an investment conference where both groups have been together. Mm -hmm. It's almost like the investment impact people over there in the ghetto, right. in the corner, and then the small people, and then there's the rest of the investment world. And I think the reality is that a lot of the impact investing is unfortunately not always necessarily led or initiated by the fund manager, it's mm -hmm. initiated by the LPs. Mm -hmm. And I think you have a lot more younger, mm -hmm. high net worth individuals coming out of these investment banks who say, I don't want my money yeah. to go to more bad stuff with cows. Mm -hmm. I want to invest in Beyond Meat. Right. Um, I don't want yeah. to support, yeah. I, I want to support uh, energy conservation, mm -hmm. but I don't want to support the crazy white guy from California who's on crack, literally, and then decides to tweet. I want to support <laughs> right. a young lady, mm -hmm. you know, who's doing mm -hmm. something yep. very different. So, so I do think that it's evolving, and I think as it becomes more mainstream right. and you have stories like Beyond Meat, because mm -hmm. you've always had Honest Tea, right. but because it didn't go public and it was acquired, people didn't understand, like, yeah. oh, that's an impact investing company and then I also think though my hope is that once we get past it being a dirty word we mm -hmm. actually dig deeper because right. what's interesting about most of these companies and I'll just take honest tea because I think most people know it is that it wasn't impactful because it didn't have sugar it was impactful because it was actually one of the first companies to go abroad and actually help establish cooperatives mm -hmm. so the community wealth was created where they were actually pulling the berries from and that then manufacturing happened right there and it was just in time finished produced here in the United States and it was a supply chain impact, right. not just, oh, it's sugar-free for kids. But I think that's a complicated conversation. Mm -hmm. And in the world of tweeting, mm -hmm. uh, you can't get that in 140 right. characters. Well, the Beyond Meat you know, uh, investment was really interesting. That's when I learned about donor-advised funds. Yep. And I honestly sat back and said, why aren't we using this more? Yep. Um, and so that's a whole nother area that I think, especially in the in the D.C. area, we have an opportunity to really yeah. explode on that. And I will say, ironically, because I think it's pretty clear where I am politically based on who I work for, but I will say that that is something um, that Republicans and particularly Grassley are mm -hmm. big about, right? That mm -hmm. donor-advised funds basically mean if I'm a person of, of wealth or means and I want a tax write-up, I put it in a fund, but I never have to spend it. I never have to do anything with it. Ideally, it doesn't go back to my kids, but right. we've watched people do that. Um, and and in, if you think about Schwab um, and Fidelity together, those are the two highest. They have like over a trillion dollars right. that's just 
sitting there, not used, wow. but those funds can make investments. Absolutely. And the money can't go back to the individual, but it's a great recycling tool. And so I am optimistic. Well, they can reinvest it. And then itself, they can but it can't also... go back to the individual. Right. And, right. and I'm hoping, right, that mm -hmm. the political decision around actually making the money go mm -hmm. out the door, because unlike a foundation, there's no requirement that the money goes out the door. Right. Sure. Um, but it's a tremendous space, and, and it's one where I, I'm glad you raised it, only because I do think it's where... If, if there's an opportunity for entrepreneurs to get in front of family offices, particularly entrepreneurs in color of women, mm -hmm. they're less hierarchical. Mm -hmm. There's gotta be at least, ho hopefully, well, there's gotta be a woman in there somewhere because they got kids and they have a family. But, but they're also, their process is more around how do I amplify the family values than how do I make a return? Absolutely. And they have been some of the leaders in many of these emerging manager funds, which I think oftentimes goes mm -hmm. un unnoticed. I think one of the things that I've seen in talking with entrepreneurs is that entrepreneurs and particularly women entrepreneurs often don't understand that a social impact fund or, or, or a social impact investor. So I have talked to um, folks who think they can get into the venture backable space because they have a good idea and well this is going to change the world. Great. You still have to have a business plan. You still have to have those numbers. You still have to be able to be investing in you. And I guess I just want to say that because I know when we talk to entrepreneurs, it's so important for us to be really clear. It's not that people don't care about it. They absolutely do. And I'm okay if you lead with it. Yep. And you still have to have a good business plan. Your numbers you have to work. You still have to have, yeah. you know, something that's going to work in the venture backable space, absolutely. which is a subset of what we've been talking about, right? Yep. Like 1863 Ventures and also Project 500 wasn't just focused on venture backable backable Absolutely. companies. It was looking at entrepreneurs across the yep. spectrum. And when we're talking about social impact investing in this way, we're generally talking about venture backable companies who are looking to scale at a very high rate. And so we're looking for numbers. Yep. The numbers have to show that Absolutely. you can act actually do that. Absolutely. And I think that I think what what's appealing and I wish people more people led with impact investing is that particularly for entrepreneurs and women, entrepreneurs of color and women, it's probably the best investment tool we have because where there is a slight nuance and difference from traditional venture impact investing, you know, venture capital say you have seven years, but they really want their money back in three to five. Right. right? Usually an impact investing is a ten year term. And I think for women and entrepreneurs of color that's extremely important because there was research that I did as or spend a quarter of a million dollars more than their white peers to start the same exact business. Yeah. And so, and that was important research, which I didn't know at the time, only because we have now gone out to share it with accelerators mm -hmm. and other ecosystems to be able to say, when you're comparing two entrepreneurs, they're not the same. Right. And it's not because of race or gender, it's because of the cost to start a business for a woman and wow. person of color. Because that $250,000 is both direct and, and indirect cost that they experience. Outside of the, the example you just gave, what other data have you uncovered recently that you think is, is um, can inform others? Um, humbled and challenged uh, in a good way to go give up more diverse entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. and, and as an angel investor, I've struggled to be part of groups because I'm like, how come when I bring a deal, nobody even gives it a second mm. look, but I've got to like meet with your damn entrepreneur. Um, and so um, and so I gave this, the, the, this kind of uh, conversation around the cost, and then I challenged them to think about why mm -hmm. there were not more angels of color. Right. And, and the two preliminary surveys was one, that unlike a pipeline angels or others, many of these angels hyper-focused on tech. Well, when your engineer daughter doesn't, be, that's just not where particularly people of color are going in the norm. Mm -hmm. We're going to marketing or non-P&L type things. We don't get invited or that's not the group that we hang out with. So therefore, our numbers is the conscious prohibits because they underestimate this thing called the black tax. Mm -hmm. So we got, we got kids, we got animals, we got people we take care of. <laughs> but we also have parents right, right that mm -hmm. we're taking care of. Oh, yes. And this idea that while we are moving up from a wealth perspective, that the net income is dramatically less because people don't understand, like the like the athletes and the and the rappers, we have posses that we are responsible for right. on a Very regular true. basis. And so, if you have an angel group that says you have to commit a hundred thousand dollars this year. Well, why? Yeah. First of all, it's relatively arbitrary, but why? And it was good to hear that, like, Golden Sea is like, now you have, you have to make an investment of $10,000. Mm -hmm. And I was like, awesome, mm -hmm. because you're really missing out. I mean, I meet women from on some amazing stock options mm -hmm. who say, I want to be an angel investor, and they have nowhere to go. Right. Absolutely. Right. Yep. And I think another interesting point um, is that 
black women in general, we don't get the inheritance that right. a lot of our counterparts do. Right. And so when they look at those numbers, they're actually pulling that, those numbers. So if anybody dies oh. in my family, I'm up to pay for it. So I no, <laughs> but that's why life insurance is, is important. And then the other thing is we get angel investors from previously successful entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. yep. yeah. And historically that hasn't been us at those right. large changing. But I can't let you go without talking about the new voices fund. Yes. So we really need to talk about that. Yep. Um, so it was so funny. Uh, I was part of the, a cohort of new voices. Yep. Your picture is on their website. You are one of our posters. I am the poster child. Yes. Everybody's calling me. And then yes. I said, no, go talk to Melissa Bradley. That's what I do. I just yeah, like, thanks. They I do say that. I flip yes. them back to yes. you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and, uh, and I remember when I was going back and forth and with them, and they said, well, you need to talk to our new person. Um, her name is Melissa Brad. We'll do the introduction. Do, do you like, know her? Do you, do you know her? I was like, never mind. You don't need to do an introduction. I know who she is. How in the world did you get involved with, with that? Um, so I met the family two years before, I guess, they became famous. To the, and it's funny because I had met an African family. It's like brothers and sisters. And so I was invited to be a judge at a social impact pitch competition at the Kennedy Center that paired up rappers hmm. with social entrepreneurs. And it was a rap battle. And MC Light was the host. Oh, I love MC oh, Light. And MC Light's on I the microphone. Right. And it was in probably the smallest theater I've ever been in the Kennedy hmm. Center. It was standing room only. And I met Emmett, the hmm. cousin, there. And they were like, oh, that oh, was That's cool. the relation. I've been trying to figure and, it out. And, so, and then the, the, one of the gentlemen who put it on was also another cousin. Mm. And so as they knew, or Rich knew, that the sale was going to happen, they wanted to talk to somebody about philanthropy. Mm. And so a woman that I knew at Goldman Sachs called me and said, I need you to come talk to this family. They have some money. They're about to get a whole bunch more money. And because you used to run ties, we want mm -hmm. them to talk to you about donor advised mm -hmm. fund. Mm -hmm. We want you to talk to them about fiscal sponsorship. Mm -hmm. And we sure enough want you to talk to them about the law. Mm -hmm. So I went up there, did this presentation. I had no idea who the family was, and come to find out, it was the Dennis family. Rich was not there, but everybody else was there. <laughs> I, as always, gave pretty blunt uh, advice, and they were like, oh, nobody's ever said that before. And I was like, well, because I may never hear from you again. I just want you to know what you're getting into. Right. And we continued to have conversations. And what was the, going to be a very disparate set of activities really came together through lots of people that they bought into the ecosystem around, we are deeply committed to entrepreneurship, people of color. We are deeply committed to women, since I think people tend to forget Rich started the company with his mom, right. Sadie, on the 125th Street in Malcolm X with him selling. And even as a black man, he sees the disparities that he experienced and then knows other women in the space who are like, wow, you're actually being, I didn't know it was possible to be treated worse. Mm -hmm. And so the idea is that the foundation's job is to touch and support through ACE access capital and education as many female entrepreneurs of color all across the world, sector agnostic, and to then provide a pathway upwards to traditional venture capital. And where feasible, the $100 million fund, which I think is probably the only time it's happened where an entrepreneur says, you want to buy me, you got to come up off an additional $50 million, not for me, but for a group of people that we don't even know who the hell it's going to be, but I want you to create more companies like me. And so now you have the $100 million. We have over 22 companies in the portfolio, which is important and significant because most VC companies only have 20 after three years. That's a year. Like mm -hmm. July marked the year announcement mm -hmm. of the fund. And so it's pretty amazing um, to see the role that has been intentional around how do I recognize venture capital is mm -hmm. not for everybody? Right. Uh, how do I use non-dilutive capital to fill mm -hmm. that friends and family round? Uh, looking at other things like recoverable grants of how do we move them up the food mm. chain and get them much more comfortable around finance? Uh, and how do I now partner with anchor institutions where we know black and brown women are to begin to provide and show role models of other companies. So it's an amazing journey. It's a lot has happened in a year. Yes. Um, and the, the coupling with places like Tuck 
mm-hmm. and Babson and recognizing the role of education right. in, in ongoing learning and providing that free of charge mm-hmm. is pretty huge because well, it goes way, back to the pedigree of how do you get to these institutions. Mm-hmm. Speaking of talk, I got to finish my second part. <laughs> See? So I need to come, come talk on, to you. On, I need on. to finish. I didn't want to do it this year because I was supposed to go and this, but yeah. I, I didn't think I was ready, but yeah. I don't think I'll be ready for next year. But that's so. huge, right? To, because mm-hmm. I don't know that either of those institutions, I'll be them wonderful, but not as good as Georgetown, <laughs> would have reached out to these women to, right. to right. let them in or even thought about that program. What's fascinating people don't know is that now there's the, the other venture of Madam C.J. Walker Institute, mm-hmm. and then there's the foundation named after the mom, and so that focuses on young people. And so That's it's great. really building an ecosystem. So you've got new voices, which is on women. You have new general market, which by default is now men. You have the youth foundation named after his mothership development. And then you have the Madam C.J. Walker Institute, which is designed to be a think tank and a do tank to begin to amplify and really change what's happening. That's awesome. That yeah. is great. That's cool. awesome. That's and he's not standing story. on the mountaintop sh- shouting his he's story not. yet either. And it needs to No, really he's pretty be... low-key about that. Yeah. <laughs> but, but a lot of impact. So that's, that's great. And, and talking about generations, so we mentioned earlier you have six, six children. I do. And you're doing amazing work everywhere. So I'm sure they're learning a lot from you, things that they want to do, things that they might not want to do. But what are you most excited about for their future based on where you see the industry, economy, the world going? And then what scares the bejesus out of you Mm -hmm. for them? So the kids are 28 to 12. Mm -hmm. Um, So for the older kids, I am just so thrilled they're all gainfully employed mm-hmm. um but also doing what they enjoy mm-hmm. um you know as teenagers saying what are you going to do where are you going to go to school um i think what myself and my wife who's also an entrepreneur have provided them is the freedom to decide what they enjoy mm-hmm. while making sure they can take care of themselves right. uh, there's no freebies here mm-hmm. um so i'm just thrilled for them uh, and i'm excited for the younger girls because they are learning uh, a lot earlier than i did around mm-hmm. finding your voice Um, and taking on leadership roles and not being afraid of confrontation. I think what scares me the most is the amount and proliferation of confrontation that they have on a daily basis. Um, I think that unfortunately what we tend to see that is happening in our black and brown communities is amplified on the news and Mm -hmm. horrific outcomes, but the reality is the increase in microaggressions in schools that I think has always existed for girls of color in Mm -hmm. particular, but now even more so coming from teachers Mm -hmm. and, you know, saying, go back. Where am I going to go back? I was born here. Where are you going? Um, And so I think that's what scares me the most. Mm -hmm. My mom is 91 years old, and Mm -hmm. she often says that she was thrilled when Obama was elected president. She never thought that once he became president, she would ever be fearful that we would go back to the Jim Crow days because she was born in 1929. Wow. That's crazy. That is crazy. But her mother is on par with some of the civil rights leaders that I've spoken Mm -hmm. to about what's going on today as well. And these are the, I mean, when I say these are the last living legends we have left right now today, we we need to really sit by their feet and learn as much as possible. And capture their story. We just had Jay Newton Small on with Memory Well. And and although she focuses typically on those that are transitioning, Zena and I both said we need to get our like my I need, mm-hmm. have to get my grandmother to write her yep. story because we don't have that and so we're now working on a four generation book so my grandmother, awesome. my mom, myself, and my daughter because we don't know how long that's going to last but to be able to get that we came up with a name it's called I've got to tell you something so oh, I like that my grandmother came up with it just two weeks ago so of she did <laughs> she, she's, but she's been sitting on the thought of writing this book for seven years mm-hmm. and, be, and because we had that conversation with Jay I've really started pushing it's it with huge. her um, and I wonder if you're going to do the same thing with your mom so it's interesting my mom she's healthy as a horse her mm-hmm. mind is there her body's a little feeble it. but mm-hmm. whoo, she will tell you a story so what's interesting is um, probably about 10 years ago there's a book called All About Me mm-hmm. and so we got her that book now I think she's gone through four of them because oh, she's wow. certainly lived longer than any of us expected even herself mm-hmm. and so it literally asks you to sh- it asks you questions and yes. prompt and it's interesting because mm-hmm. I will admit that there are moments where I wish I had more conversations with her, but I know mm-hmm. I'm scared to death of some of those conversations. Yeah. I'm just being honest. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a written document that, that my sister and I have agreed we will not open until she okay. passes. And because... Mm-hmm. Um, Gave me chills. Because uh-huh. she's still here, I would say that at least four to five times a month, I'll look up and go, where are the kids? 
and they're with grandma. Wow. And they come back and they'll say, did you know grandma did it? And sometimes I don't know. And mm -hmm. I'm like, really? Let me go ask grandma about that. And sometimes she'll, they'll come back with stories that I'm very familiar with. Mm -hmm. And so we haven't gotten to the point of like that level of documentation, but we are mindful that I can't even describe what right. my mom went through. It yeah. would just be so underwhelming mm -hmm. to say like she marched with Dr. Martin Luther King right. um, but to have them hear those stories and then come back and then say well, what would you learn from it and of course Maddie who protested swimming was like we should be marching because we're mm -hmm. not being treated well in school and her sister Mackenzie was like we need to like really change like we need to talk we're all the same yeah. and so we're doing it and uh but it is it is uh it's hard as the child because 91 is long time and right. uh, so i think there's there's things that i try to spend more time seeing how she feels now mm -hmm. um because i do believe there was a point as any parent mm -hmm. wants their kids to do better that she did a great job with myself and my sister that i can see and hear the fear she has for her grandchildren mm -hmm. that yeah, they'll be okay because we're going to yeah. make sure but will they really be okay right. in mm -hmm. the larger scheme of things? and also i have to thank you melissa because um as you know most people know uh, my father mm -hmm. is ill yep. and um i have now become his guardian and conservator but the reason i'm thanking you is because i remember you know there were times your mother was ill mm -hmm. And you stopped everything that you were doing yep. to yeah. go and take care of your mom. Yep. And you are doing so many things at one time. And you st and I just remember that. I was like, well, Melissa can stop. She's a professor. She's an <laughs> investor. She's running, <laughs> she's running organizations. She's also, you know, advising. I'm like, I'm not doing all of that. So I can take a few minutes yep. and stop and see about my dad. So you need to continue to be that example that family is important mm -hmm. yep. and family is first, especially yep. if your parents are still alive. Yep. And I just want to thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you. That is our motto in 83, family first. Mm -hmm. You and you have to tell me what happened. You just say, I'm out because of my kid. Mm -hmm. Great. Don't come back till they're okay. Yeah. yeah. We, we, we appreciate everything that you're doing thank you. in the ecosystem. I appreciate this and you all. This is awesome. Well, before we let you go, tell our listeners how they can find you. There's a lot of different ways they could look you up. So is, is there a best way to connect with you or the organizations you're working on? Sure. What would you like to share um, with our listeners? So 1863 is easy. So I think if you do 1863ventures.net, that's the organization. And it's Melissa, M-E-L-I-S-S-A, at 1863ventures.net. Okay, wonderful. We had a lot going on today. Mm -hmm. We started with ecosystem building and starting out in corporate America, and we ended with legacy and family. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot in between that. We talked about being in places where we may not be welcome or seen for who we are and our capabilities. We talked about creating places that we want to see that make us comfortable, that work for us, and then also having to make some sacrifices, perhaps, to make those things work even when we don't want to. Um, I think what was really interesting in talking with Melissa about the ecosystem building is that you've done it along so many different, um, in so many different ways, right? Project 500, 1863 Ventures, New Voices. You've talked about just meeting people and giving them good advice, and so, for those of you listening, you might want to go back and listen to this episode again because we talked about a lot of different mm -hmm. really cool things. We talked about her impact in there, and we didn't talk about all the support that, for example, the Ford Motor Company Fund provides for her impact mm -hmm. and other things, but none of this happens in isolation. Right. We talked about creating an ecosystem in locations, right? Geographic locations like Atlanta or DC. And then we talked about what it means to have an ecosystem that we want to support and to be proud of social impact and what that looks like. So lots of things covered today. Thank you so much for being with us. Super excited to have you in studio. Make sure to check out our website at getfoundgetfunded.com. Sign up for our newsletter and check us out on social media. We're on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And of course, listen each week or re-listen each week and don't miss an episode.